You're listening to Coffee Chats with a Life Coach podcast, and today we'll get the answer to a really weird question. Did you ever have the thought that it would be interesting to talk to someone who has died to ask how it is? Well, let's do just that. We're going to have a conversation with my friend and member of my book writing accountability group, Carl Perry, whose book, You Only Live Thrice, tells the story of that time when his heart stopped and how life changed after it restarted. Let's get into it. Carl, hi. Hi, Andrea. How are you? Good, good. Your book is one of the books that I recommend to everyone. It's been a roller coaster for me to read it. And then after I read it, I've gone through so many emotions because of it. I felt gratitude at times. I felt anxiety at times. It's been it's been life-changing. But let's start with why you wrote it. A short summary. You don't have to go into details. Just a short summary of that day that basically changed your life. Yeah, that's really, really kind of you to say those words. Uh, and I, I genuinely um, I mean, it's very humbling to hear that, you know, it impacts people's lives. Um, yeah, it was May the 8th, 2019, almost bang on 10 a.m., um, when I had a sudden cardiac arrest at home. Um, and there, there was no warning. There was no pain. There was no breathlessness. I was literally mid-sentence talking to my wife. And that's basically it. My heart stopped beating. Um, uh, and that's slightly different to a heart attack. Uh, you can be conscious and have a heart attack, but a cardiac arrest, you're just unconscious and that's it. You, and then you stop breathing. And that's, that's, that's basically how you'll stay for the rest of eternity, um, unless somebody can uh, intervene and reverse the situation. And I, I've got a still to this day no idea how, but my wife managed to carry out CPR um, long enough until the paramedics arrived. Um, and there were a couple of shocks and I was back. But basically, they told me that I'd been dead for... Um, 11 minutes, um, <clears throat> which is not how I'd planned my day to unfold that particular day. Um, I'd envisaged myself watching Game of Thrones at some point um, instead of, you know, sort of being some bizarre character that's come back from a different place. Um, and from there on in, I mean, there were there were almost some perspective changes, I guess, almost immediately. You can't help but go through that and think what what on earth was that about uh, but then over time there were other perspective shifts largely around being very aware how finite we are and therefore how valuable the time actually is you know that we have got and what we should and should's probably the wrong word that's not a great word but what we could do with our time should we should we be brave enough to, to actually, you know, think about it. So I guess that's, that's it. it is without a doubt, you know, the single biggest life-changing event that's ever happened to me. And this was before the pandemic, remember. There were all kinds of lives were upended and turned upside down during the pandemic, but this was before. So that's a good example, actually. That's, that's, that's a, one of the first examples, really, of, me looking at what happened to my life and then what was going on in the pandemic and thinking this is not the worst thing the pandemic's not the worst thing that's ever happened to me i've dealt with something far more challenging so i'll be able to deal with this that's 
that's one of the shifts perspective. Something that I mentioned in the introduction that I'm sure people will be curious about, and you do mention it in the book. Did you feel anything while you were yeah. quote dead? I, I do get asked this a lot. Um, and I always feel like I need to give a sort of a caveat before I give my answer, um, which is I am a, I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in a, a creator uh, or a heaven. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a kind of pro-faith atheist in that I like the idea of it. Um, I just can't believe it. And I'm fully supportive of those that do. You know, if you believe in whoever and whatever you want, I absolutely support that. But me personally, I don't. So the reason why I feel I need to say this is because I saw and felt absolutely nothing. Um, I, I can't even, I couldn't even tell you hand on heart that it was just darkness and, and blackness and silence because that would suggest that I was aware enough to actually take that in and there was nothing. It was, for me, literally, as I say, mid-sentence, it was like taking a movie, piece of movie and cutting it mid-frame and then joining up a completely new movie mid-frame, mid-picture, two mid-pictures joined together, which makes no sense. Um, and that's that's how it felt to me when I came came around. It's like I had no idea why I was on, on the floor surrounded by these people in green with something on my face uh, and everyone looking all concerned. As far as I was concerned, I was, you know, it was a normal day. Um, but no, I, I haven't seen anything. I didn't experience anything. And do you know what? As an atheist, I would have loved to have seen or felt something, anything, just to have almost my own satisfaction proved myself wrong. I do have a theory that maybe us atheists aren't allowed to see anything. You know, there might be some kind of afterlife admin process that, that means if you're not in the club, then you, you, you're, not, you're not allowed to see all the great stuff um, and they'll just keep you in this sensory deprivation chamber while they decide whether you're actually staying or whether you're going back. <laughs> in a way, I find this um, reassuring. I mean, I'd rather have nothing than really start to imagine what could be afterwards. I would just really rather have nothing. And I, I know there are two um, very different things, but I, I faint quite easily. And I know that when I'm unconscious, even though um, cardiac arrest is the heart, when you faint, it's definitely the, the brain. So there are different things, but I feel nothing. When I'm unconscious, I feel nothing, but I do feel the fading out and then the fading in okay. when I come yeah. back. But in the middle, there's nothing. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's not like you're in some sort of dream state or, no. or, or, you know, hallucinating or anything like that. No, it's nothing. No, that's, that, 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 that's, that's exactly how I would describe it, um, but without the fader. Yeah. <laughs> there was no fading. This, this was just a, a, a cut. You wrote about it and brilliantly, um, if I can say that again, how was the process of writing the book in terms of your emotions, in terms of processing what happened? Did you need breaks from it? Did you need to, um, yeah, to, to take some time off to process what was coming out? Yeah, so I, I suppose I didn't start writing until 
probably a whole 18 months after the actual event. And, you know, there were, there were other events that happened uh, between um, that event and me starting writing. I mentioned the pandemic. That was one. I had to close my event management business. Um, my mum also died. Um, now, you know, lo losing a parent, unfortunately, generally is, is kind of hardwired into life. It's, it's just the nature of things, isn't it? it? It's more than likely to happen at some point. Um, but I think on the back of those other two, two things, there was a, there was a buildup um, within me. And, you know, my, my mental health was beginning to suffer at that point. And I wasn't entirely clear about what, what to do about it. Um, you know, like any self-respecting middle-aged man, keeping it to yourself seems the best, the best option. Um, but after a while, I realized I, I actually had to, had to do something. So I just started writing down uh, almost for self-help in a, in, a, in a way, just to get some thoughts out of my head. Uh, and I thought I'd start with that that story my you know what happened on on may the 8th and a little bit before um just to give it some context but that that was the only goal well there, there was no real goal it was just like right for as long as i wanted and I, I can even remember the first page the first lines of the very first page when i started typing was something like <clears throat> i've got no idea what i'm going to write about or even how long i'm going to write for but i'm just going to keep writing and see what comes out you know, and I typed all that out and it just kind of flowed and flowed and flowed. And once I got into the habit of writing, it actually became, it was partially, <laughs> partially painful, but um, quite cathartic in reliving some of that pain. So there, even in the writing process, there was a, a lot of tears, there was a, a lot of laughter. Uh, and I, I think I got, if I'm honest, I got a little bit obsessed with it because I, I remember some days I might have, knocked out 5,000 words. Um, but then I might have taken a, a few days break and maybe only 500 words would, would come out. Um, and then, of course, there's a temptation to read back what you've written and, and try and edit. But that I couldn't see the point of that because I was only ever doing this for me. No one was ever going to read it. So really early on, I took the decision of there's no point in glossing this. There's no point in... Um, putting any kind of spin or, or style in it. This has just got to be raw, guttural stuff coming out. And, and therefore, I was really, really brutally honest with myself about my own feelings. And that was, that, that can be quite challenging. You know, when, you, when you're really exposing yourself to yourself, it's, wow, this is, you know, you can go into some dark places sometimes and, but ultimately, that that can be really beneficial because you are you're not hiding from anything, and I think that's where I found the strength. It was probably what what became probably two thirds of the way through the whole process that I began to realise that ah, this is this is really feeling better. I am feeling so much better for having shared and aired this with myself. That. Um, but I'm not just sitting on it. <clears throat> and bear in mind, still, no, nobody's read this. Nobody's read this at all. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't taking anyone else's uh, critical feedback on it. it. It was just purely myself. And I wasn't rereading anything. I was just continuing to go on and go on and go on. So 
yes, slightly obsessive. I did need breaks. All kinds of emotional roller coasters um, we've gone through, but it just felt the right thing to do at that time. And in a strange kind of way, in, enjoyable. That's probably not the right word, but it's, it wasn't a laugh a minute from beginning to end, but it just felt, I tell you what, it, not enjoyable. It felt, even, even in the hard times, it felt a positive thing to do. Do you remember how long it took from the moment when you started writing until you got the book in your hands? Yeah, so I probably started in um, very, uh, probably first, second of December in 2020. <clears throat> and the book was published on the 15th of December, 21. Once I'd gone through all the editing processes and, you know, lost 20,000 words on the cutting room floor and, um, oh God, my wife read it for the first time. That was a brutal, brutal editing exercise honestly i can't tell you how much red pen was on this on this script on this manuscript uh, but once i got it down to the final final thing and this is it i think i must have hovered over the publish button for about three weeks before i dare actually press publish um, even though everything had gone into it and bearing in mind i'd never intended to write a book there was that imposter voice say just 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 reminding me saying who do you think you are to, to think that you you have the right to publish a book or, or or call yourself an author or you know mix in this world and have something on Amazon um, and I guess it was there might have been a little bit of oh, what are people going to think of it but again using that that measure of well far worse things have happened to me so if, if someone doesn't like my writing that is not going to materially change my world at all so so what. It was it was me. It was me that was pausing. It was me that was like, mm. but that would have only shaved a few weeks off. It still it still took a year, I suppose, from start to finish. Well, people have read it and loved it, and you have close to a hundred and fifty reviews on Amazon. So yeah. if now knowing this, and you've probably gotten feedback from a lot of people saying this really helped this has had an impact on my life so in hindsight what did you what would you tell Carl while he was still struggling to hit publish yeah and, that, and that's a good question and even only today I believe it or not I've had an email from somebody who said they read it over the Christmas holidays um <laughs> they'd gone on a cruise and um basically just lost three days with their partner because they wanted to sit reading my book, which <laughs> which is incredible. Um, but what would I say? I, I'd say what I tell a lot of people now, which is, you know, well, the two things, the two things, you know, why not, why not me? And what's the worst that can happen? That's that's what I'd say. Crack on with it because I, I can't imagine, you know, you you've written a book. You know what it's like. I can't imagine getting to the end of my life and going, oh, I'm so glad I didn't write that book. That would have been really annoying if I'd written that book. Oh, if I spent all that time writing that book. Oh, no, that would have been an absolute waste of my life. Anyway, bye. You know, that's um, that, that would be ridiculous. I'm so, so glad that I did it now. 
and I would encourage anyone, anyone, who, you know, to who thinks they've got a book in them just to write, just to start writing, get anything down, first of all. Uh, it's a great experience. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that you, you're really proud of, even though I have to admit, I've, I've had people telling me, your book is great. It helped me so much. I still have moments when I feel imposter syndrome and I'm thinking, yep. who reads this? And I, I cannot believe it when someone tells me they, they did. So I still have those moments. It's yep. like my brain is split in two. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I can get that. And I was convinced as well also that, you know, when I first wrote this book, that it would only be my family and sort of inner circle of friends that would read it. Um, so I'd originally left all the original names in. Then I thought, oh, I better change all the names. So I changed all the names, including my family names. Um, and, then, and then because I thought, yeah, but only people who know me are going to read this. So that would look ridiculous to them. So I changed them all back to the original names. Um, but yeah, it, it, as it transpires, um, far more people have read it. I think we're. I think I'm up to now about 800, just over 800 sales, um, which which is which blows my mind. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. Lee Child will be sleeping easy, you know. I don't think uh, <clears throat> I don't think uh, he's going to be worried about me catching him up on the bestseller list. But but that's not the point. In a way, it, it's just the fact that people are getting something out of it. Is, is the incredible reward and that is the biggest reward really isn't it because you you don't you don't do this for financial gain you know you're not going to retire on the royalties of a self-published book um so yeah it's it's how it's received and perceived i think is is the reward i've had very recently a conversation with someone who is thinking about writing a book a book about an event that happened in her life. And she was saying, um, sort of related to this imposter syndrome, she was saying, well, I can write it, but it's such a um, small event in my life. Who would, who would care about it? There are so many other bigger things that are happening in the world. Why would someone care about this little thing that has impacted me? And my perspective was, well, most of us live through the little things, not the big events in the world. So I would rather have some insight from you because the probability of happening to me as well is slightly bigger. What would you say to her? I think, I, I, you know, I can understand where she's coming from because, again, you know, you, you tend to devalue your own experiences and put more value on other people's experiences. But I think also we're all storytellers at heart. You know, human beings, are, we live for stories, um, either telling them or hearing them. You know, that's why, that's why the film business is so, so big. That's why TV is so big. That's why we love reality shows. That's also why we love gossip. You know, we want to hear other people's stories, especially about other people telling other people's stories. Um, so I, I, I don't think you can ever underestimate 
how interesting someone is going to find your own personal experience um because one one there is a <laughs> there is a, a little bit of morbid curiosity as to you know ooh, what, what's happened there um but also people tend to when they're listening to stories whether they consciously realize it or not the kind of looking out for any similarities with their own life you you kind of compare oh i've had some of i've yeah i've experienced a little bit of that um and it and therefore the value of what you're hearing goes up i i i think you just have to sort of be brave and 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 realize the value of what you've got and the importance of sharing your story and i'll come back to you again you know what's what's the worst that can happen really it's you know the worst that can happen is you'll have a book out there forever with your name on it. Well, isn't that brilliant? If that's the worst thing that happens, you know, that's fantastic. But actually, even if it's just one person who's interested or takes something from it, then that's that's a massive achievement. Do you find it a bit mind-blowing that our books will stay beyond us? After yeah. we die, they will still be there. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I have this. Um, I mean, there was, <laughs> you've read my book. There are various references in there that have, have made people uh, smile and a little bit surprised about how honest and candid I've been about various experiences. And um, I have this, I have this kind of vision of, you know, at some point in the future, a, a grandchild turning around to, you know, one of my sons and saying, granddad wrote this. You know, and if he's thinking or she's thinking that, then, you know, what's the next generation going to think? Whoa, 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 hang on. What? Our great granddad wrote this? And I'm not saying it in that tone because it's such a literary masterpiece. I'm saying it because of how candid it is in part. And, um, yeah, it does. It does actually blow my mind. But that's that's what I mean about, God, please, if you've got an idea for a book, just do it. Because imagine having something hanging around so much longer than than we will be that's that's isn't that just mega i don't remember exactly in which write that book group but one of the ladies in one of the 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 master classes i did died after yes really maybe weeks or maybe a couple of months after she published. And I was right. thinking, I cannot believe that she managed to actually publish. And there is something that's living, um, yep. even though she's not here anymore. And it was it was really only weeks or, or months after. I felt, yeah, it was a magic. I would I say magic. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I remember thinking the same thing. Um, I think she, it was it was called something like "Found Without Papers in the Med" or something like. It was a memoir, wasn't it? Um, and it's almost like she held on to to just complete it. But I mean, having that out there now for her family must give them a lot of pride mm -hmm. and comfort. Yeah, because it's her voice, isn't it? It's her voice. You can you you know they, they will hear her voice. And I, and I think that's another interesting thing, actually, that you know future generations um will get to hear your voice your tone your style your you know your 
your writing style comes through in a in that voice in your head as you read it. Very special. Very, very special. Very. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Are you going to write another? I'm considering it, but uh, I'm not committing to anything yet. I have ideas. <laughs> I have ideas, but I haven't sat down to actually start yeah, to, to write yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I guess that's the thing as well, also, is that we're now far more aware of what an undertaking it is yes. to actually write the book. It's not just something you knock out in uh, a couple of wet weekends in uh, in winter, is it? Yep. Yeah. You know how how the process will be. Even though I do believe that every book is different, and um, the the process might not look exactly the same like the first one, but I have an idea of what that looks like. Going back to the unfortunate incident, let's call it. <laughs> <laughs> now that obviously your whole perspective of life has changed, how do you find that balance between, oh, I want to live every single day like it could be my last one, but actually not do that, you know, not jeopardizing your future by living every day to the extreme so i don't think so here yeah, I, I don't think i'd even left my hospital bed where i i i'd already begun to wrestle with this kind of uh notion of right there are going to be some changes now carl and um you know it's it's very important to get a lot of i want to do more things that makes me smile and less things that you know that don't um but I even realized there and then that this didn't mean that I was going to move to Ibiza and become a hedonist. Um, equally, I wasn't going to go to Nepal and become, you know, a monk. I think the balance is somewhere along the lines of, as I've already said, recognizing and appreciating that with we are finite. You know, my view of time and the future and whatever you think the future is has been re refocused now in that i'm i'm very aware that there is a there is there is a clock and it's only if we're really really lucky we're going to get those 80 80 plus orbits of the sun you know and we can do our own arithmetic and work out you know what that means for us for our respective ages um but i'm just aware of time i'm also aware that there's very little point in doing too much of the um, well I think Paul McGee calls it uh, sort of time travel uh, so there's not that you know don't spend too much time dwelling on the past and don't spend too much time fretting about the future because really you can only influence the now so put put your energy and your focus into that sure plan of course you can plan but don't don't for one minute expect all those plans to come off in the way that you want them to, or even for them to necessarily come off. Because, you know, in all the futures we envisage, we're healthy and our friends and family are healthy and everything is tickety-boo and everything's financially great and, you know, we want to do X, Y and Z. Well, there are a million reasons why one or more of those things won't happen. That sounds awfully negative. And I'm not saying I anticipate a negative future at all because by being positive and focusing on the now you know the future will evolve in a positive way yeah it's not the live every day as it's as it might be your last it's just 
being aware, being aware of <clears throat> how short time is. You know, every, everyone says it about the kids. I bet, you know, only since two minutes since, you know, you had a baby in your arms and now you've got a fully formed human being demanding to be entertained. Um, <clears throat> and and that, that's the same with me. You know, it doesn't seem that long ago since I got to hold my little kids for the first time and now they're 22 and, and, and 19. It's, it's, it's an awareness of time, I think, is where my perspective has changed quite considerably. Hence, my more revised approach to um, allowing fear to become involved in decision making. So, you know, fear can, <clears throat> fear can play all kinds of games with us. Uh, and without us even really overly realizing it can be limiting our, our, our life opportunities and experiences you know, quite, quite quickly, just deciding that something isn't an option for us and therefore we don't really consider it. Well, if you actually stop and consider that, then that doesn't seem very fair. You know, that's a lot of power for, for one emotion. So I kind of, I'm, I'm now far more alert to when that wants to play a role in decision making, I tend to challenge it more and, and stop and explore it on the basis of t time isn't going to go on forever. So why why stop myself having to go at something on the basis that oh, I might do it later or, or see how I feel that you know next year? Um, you can't overassume. I know this was one of the main points in in your TED talk. So now you've told the story in a TED talk as well. Congratulations, by the way. I think it's uh, an amazing accomplishment. Thank you very much. Yeah, what an experience. I'm curious how that experience was for you delivering that that TED talk, and if you had any sort of yeah any fears before it. Well, it was quite an intense experience in terms of um, it is a process. It's not you just get over the line, you qualify, and then you learn your talk and and then deliver it. It's it was a really, really demanding process. There were hundreds of applicants, um, and I think they got it down to about 25 initially. And we were told that we were on a, a speaker program. Uh, so you weren't actually a speaker yet. They weren't saying you are going to eventually be on the stage. Um, it was still very much for a program. Um, and they eventually whittled us down to nine people. <clears throat> but you know, at some point, I remember standing on that stage after we'd done some rehearsals. And I had an Olympian to my left. You know, she she had the five rings tattooed on her arm um, and competed at a couple of games. And to my right, I had an ex-BBC uh, presenter who I had used in a previous life uh, as a, you know, an event organising world. She'd hosted some of our conferences for, for clients for us. So I, I knew her. I remember standing on stage thinking, who, the, you know, Mr. Imposter came out. Who the hell do you think you are? thinking you've got the right to share a stage with an Olympian and a BBC presenter. And neither of them got through. Yeah, I know. Incredible. They did they didn't get through. Um so that that kind that 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 again was a, a lesson for me going, wow, this is there's some weird stuff going on in the universe now. I, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> just keep going, keep going. <laughs> Um, so that that was that was a weird experience. But then you know you 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 write your own script and you hone it down and you work with a presentation coach. She's 
she had a great line. Um, you know, I, I thought I was okay. I thought I was a reasonably good presenter. I've been doing a lot of it throughout my life at the agency, pitching and you know, talking to boards and directors and whatever. Um, so I, I felt reasonably confident, you know, in the early stages of the rehearsals. And, and she basically got us all together the final nine and said, like, you, you're really good. Um, and it was a bit like that time in line in Top Gun. She went, you're really good at presenting. She said, I'm going to make you better. Oh, okay, right. Let's see how this goes. And she did. She really, really polished us up. Um, but the strange thing about Ted is they want, they want you to, um, I think it was a week before, submit the final script. They've got to approve it. It's got to their, go through their compliance. Um, and then it gets videoed. And they overlay the video on the script to make sure you're talking about, you're, you're, you're using the words that you said you were going to um, use. What that means is, in reality, you've got to remember seven pages of text to deliver with no cue cards, no auto cue, no slides, and just deliver it. It's, it was the most mind-blowingly challenging presentation I think I've ever done because it's the most unnatural form of presentation, you know, usually I'll, I might stand there and um, you'll engage with the audience somehow. You'll get some kind of feedback. I mean, if you're an actor, 30 seconds cut. That's it. it even if you're a stage actor and you, you're on for an hour and a half, you're not talking for 17 minutes in a, in a monologue. There's other dialogue. And people have said to me, oh, so it's like um, stand up. Well, not really, because you're feeding off the audience again. And no one's going to slap your wrist if, 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 you know, if you go off script. Um, so my biggest fear was I'm just going to clam up or screw up and, and ad lib and then end up saying things that, that are off script and won't be approved. And that's that. And what's the point? <laughs> um, so that was, that was, you know, probably my biggest fear. Um, but going through all of those rehearsals, Online, offline, face to face, you know, I could tell when I was really engaged with the rehearsal because the, you know, there was emotion. I felt emotion. <clears throat> if I was going to rehearsals and I wasn't really feeling anything, I actually stopped rehearsing because it felt like, well, there's no point because I'm not fully connected with this. You know, I'll I'll come back to it either in a few hours or tomorrow or the day after, but I. Unless I felt that real connection with in 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 some areas of the talk, um, then it didn't seem worth it for me. Because it is again, it's a bit like writing a book. It's um, I had no idea of the undertaking it was, the time it takes out of your life um, to invest in this talk that ultimately doesn't even last seventeen minutes. You know, it's um, yeah, it was it, it was it was a big challenge. So what's next for you? Um, well, um, I'm still enjoying my coaching. That's great. You know, one of the great things about the the pandemic is that everyone's comfortable doing what we're doing now, you know, on, on screen. Um, so I'm coaching people in Ireland, in, in Spain, uh, in, in the UK as well. But it, it, it's not as I originally expected, which would be mostly face-to-face. -face. Actually, it's mostly through a screen, which is quite nice. Um, I'm enjoying my writing as in freelance copywriting, that seems to be increasing. 
um, well, it is increasing. Uh, more clients are wanting a different style of copy. There's a lot of copy out there and in news releases and things, it's very functional. And there's people are wanting more personality in their, in their um, communications. And I'm really enjoying injecting some of that in for people. Um, but I'm also enjoying the speaking as well. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, what a great joy it was. It's only been relatively a short time, a few weeks really since the videos came out. But since then I've already picked up two paid uh, speaking gigs, which are, well, one's yet to be confirmed, uh, but it's looking very positive, um, which are abroad, which is just blows my mind, which comes back to that whole thing of, you know, should I go for this? Should I go for this this TEDx talk or not? The fear is saying, ah, you won't get through. And the fear was certainly saying that when I was the next to an Olympian. Um, but um, challenge it. Who knows what might happen and where it might lead? And then again, you see, you know, going and doing these talks, I've got no idea where that might lead. That might lead to something else, another opportunity. And and that for me feels really exciting. Writing, coaching talking and potentially other things I don't even yet know exist. That's fantastic. And I think that's a really great stopping point. We've been talking for a while. Have we? I've not even looked at the clock. It's blown yeah. by. <laughs> I will obviously put links to the TED Talk and to the book yeah. in, in the notes because I honestly think everyone should read the book. Everyone. Bless you. Thank you very much. I, that really does mean a lot. Um, where could people find you except for these two things? Where are you? LinkedIn or? Yes, LinkedIn. Um, I've also got a, a website, which is uh, thecatalystguy.com, catalyst with a K. Um, so you'll find plenty of information there on the writing, on uh, coaching and um, speaking. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear from people. I'd love to, you know, hear any kind of feedback. Thank you so much for this. Um, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I know it will be useful for other people as well because it, the book has impacted me. And after I finished the book, I gave it to my husband, and that was one of the moments when. We've been going through, you know, um, child raising chaos for a while and you, we weren't eating properly. And that was the moment when we were like, whoa, 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 let's go back to our healthy habits because this is important. We need to, to take care of ourselves. And yeah, that was for us the, the push. And now he has this habit of every day he asks himself, what have I done for my heart today? Oh, brilliant. Wonderful. Yeah. So thank you for that. Ah, oh, fantastic to hear. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to um, end the episode. And for everyone listening, thank you so much. And I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.